welcome to the Thought Echoes podcast, where we have an opportunity to listen in as people reflect on their relationship with their thoughts and their creative work and how it's changed since their brain injury. My name is Beth Bonnes, host of the Thought Echoes podcast. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed this month's interview. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Michael Keefe. I'm an old friend of uh, Beth's from back when she lived in Milwaukee. Isn't that it or no? No, I guess I came out and met you out here. But they had departed Milwaukee and I departed the Midwest and we ran into each other out, out here and, uh, or out, out in Portland, Oregon, where I moved at that time. And uh, that was 86, I think. So a few years later, I had to move to California for a job. And uh, so that's still where I am. 22 years later, I'm still in in the Los Angeles area. I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah, isn't it wild? It's yeah. like I lived in, I was born and raised in Chicago and I lived there till I was 27. So that's the longest, but I'm I'm uh, crowding that one with my residence <laughs> in California. So, um, I, so when I knew Beth, we were doing some remodeling work on my house and on her house. And, um, so we saw quite a bit of each other for a, you know a summer or more, and mm. took some classes from her husband Jeff. So, uh, and I know all their daughters. I've seen them since they were little tiny, mm-hmm. <laughs> little tiny babies. So, uh, and then uh, when I went to the job I went to Southern California for was a residency, a surgical residency. So that took five years, and then I stayed down here. I found work in the Los Angeles area. And so that went on for 13 years, the work did. And then um, our next door neighbors wanted to put a new fence in, and they, uh, it turned out that they, were, they had a deadline to get it in because their son's birthday was coming up. You know? So they hired these guys with a tool belt and a $5,000 bond to put the fence in. And as they went, you know, they were tearing stuff up, and they threw all the garbage over the fence into our yard as they so I talked with the guy every morning during the period where they were working, and finally my wife met him outside, and uh, she happened to go out there when the neighbor was paying him off, so that she had some extra clout because of that. But anyway, she explained to him that this was not acceptable, and he needed to pick out all this junk up, so he said, oh, I'll be back here tomorrow to clean up. And I remember then, that was Saturday morning, and I, we got up, and I said, you don't really think this guy's showing up, do you? <laughs> Anyhow, so that had us both kind of upset. And about three weeks later, uh, Mary's had had three tires slashed and they drove uh, nails into a couple of my tires. So I was flipped out about that. And turned out I had already scheduled that that day off work, which which totally slipped my mind. So I was on my way to work and I stopped and filled up, uh, you know, the little thing on the dashboard said that my tire needed air so i stopped and filled that up and everything and called my office and they said well you're not really scheduled to be here and i was like so i I finally decided i'm not going to go in so i went to home depot on the way home i bought a bunch of eight foot uh four by fours and some ready mix and uh came over here and sunk those also I, i put these posts in all along the fence line with cameras up on top of them and stuff. And so I was doing that. And right when I was filling up the car tire with air at that service station, that's when I started getting a bad headache. And it was disabling. It was, you know, didn't feel good. 
so anyway i got these i got these cameras up and everything and then uh i didn't feel well so i crashed in in bed and then my wife walked in from work and uh so she had to drag me to the hospital and uh it was kind of a long protracted process but they put me in the hospital the day that i went there and i stayed in a intensive care unit overnight and the and the food was good <laughs> uh, so w when you were talking about angry because you know telling the story you're not exuding the anger that we heard you know afterwards so when when the headache started what kind of a stroke did you have it was a hemorrhagic stroke. hemorrhagic so the bleed would have been starting or gotten bad enough that you caught it caused a headache right so yeah. were you still angry were you still amped up at that point or that kind of resided a little bit no well no i was amped up and pissed because i you know i don't have any other enemies that i know about so <laughs> it was these kids uh, who had built the fence that caused all this damage to our cars so yeah i was angry about it and uh not that i had any great way to manifest that except for sinking four by fours into yeah so i don't know but yeah the other thing that happened is that we were as we were heading to the hospital mary was going to take me to the one closest here mm -hmm. and i said no take me to the one where i work they know me they'll take good care of me and that was a big mistake Mm. because we you know once we got there i realized that it was not like the it was one of the feeder hospitals in the one that's real close to mm -hmm. us here exactly actually where they take care of stroke patients so that's eventually where i was shipped the following morning you know mm. but i got in there and this emergency room doctor wouldn't listen to either of us mary had three anecdotal experiences of people having ruptured aneurysms and strokes you know right in front of her and uh this guy was like, you know, we practice evidence-based medicine here. And he's, you know, he's getting up on his soapbox and everything. And anyway, it took five hours to get a CT scan out of this guy. Oh, geez. Yeah. So that whole time I was just there stewing. You know. And, you know, he told, I, I was indicating that the pain was like, you know, behind my eye and up in this part of my head. So he eventually relented and called for an ophthalmology uh, consultation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the ophthalmologist was there and he was like well you know you don't have glaucoma or anything and I said, yeah i know he already tested me for that and so my wife started talking to him and convinced him to ask for a ct scan of the orbits so we could see if there was something wrong with the eyes mm -hmm. they did that and that included enough of the head to realize that there was a big bleed up in that part of my head on the left so that's when they shipped me to the real hospital you know and then they did surgery no, they didn't have to. They watched me. They did serial CT scans, I think, like every six or eight hours. Mm -hmm. And they could tell that the bleed had stopped. So they just left me alone. There was only one good story from being in the hospital. <laughs> there was the first night that I was there, this guy showed up who said he was a fellow with the interventional radi radiology department. And he wanted to know, he said, you need to have a brain angiogram tomorrow. And I want, I came up to talk to you to find out if I could do it. You know, it's like, great. I said, I said, how many have you done? And he said about 60. And I said, well, and, and your professor will be there with you the whole time. Right. And he said, yeah. I said, okay, that's fine. And then he asked me if I had any questions. And he asked me, he asked me finally, I said, you know, he had like a GQ look where he hadn't shaved in about three days, you know, and so uh, I finally said, well, one question, that's uh, 
What time of day do you guys shave around here? <laughs> Your sense of humor did not go away. So he got a little flustered by that. But the next morning, oh, man, he showed up clean shaven. All clean shaven. Oh, that's funny. So yeah. you were in, uh, you, you took off of work then for a chunk of time. And what kind of rehab did you go through? Well, I was, I was only in the hospital for a few days. You know, once they were sure the bleeding had stopped, they set me up to have a repeat angiogram done outpatient like a month later. Mm -hmm. And they scheduled a repeat MRI and stuff. So I did most of the rest of it from, from you know, just being at home. Right, they, yeah. I really did the same thing. Well, they, they set me up for outpatient physical therapy, so I did some of that. Mm -hmm. I was unimpressed, but it was okay. So, so that was pretty much it. I had some testing done about six months later because we got into a horrible car accident, and they wanted a neuropsychologist to test me. And it was an all I was with them eight hours. It was just horrific. You know? Yeah, and, and then, then and that was twenty fifteen, April of twenty fifteen, and then um, I had this other stroke in on, on my birthday, January twelfth this year. And uh, that was it. Was another another bad one, but I, you know, I was watching TV and I'll call, I, I was at our other house in Ventura, and I called Mary on the phone, and uh, I was just joking around with her something that I saw on the TV, and she thought I didn't sound right, but she didn't come get me right then or anything. She called me in the morning, and I wasn't making any sense, so she called nine one one to have somebody come get me. You know? So that one, uh, I don't remember anything about it. You know? I don't remember the guys coming in the house. They carted me off on a stretcher and all that kind of stuff. But was that another hemorrhagic stroke? It was. So what? the first first one was here, the second one was here. So both sides of your brain. Yeah. Jeez. And that ironically was the day before I think we were supposed I was supposed to interview you for this podcast, and oh. you were off having another stroke, which was awful. Awesome. Very, very inconvenient of me. Very. <laughs> well, I'm very glad. That's why I really wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, when you were ready, that we did get back together and, and yeah. talk. Um, so the the nature of these podcasts, because there are other stroke podcasts that go through, um, I'll say, the more medical and rehab side of it, the piece that has fascinated me since I had my strokes and kind of everything slowed down, you know, the thoughts in my case, I wasn't able to, I had some aphasia, so I wasn't able to talk for a while and uh, outside. I mean, in my head, I was talking plenty, but I wasn't able to get the words out. Good and so telepathic and everything like that. Right? Yeah, oh, there you go. Um, and so I've been fascinated with that sense of there was an essence of me that was still the same, even though I couldn't talk like I would normally talk but that that sense of who I was was still there you know behind the scenes and so I've just been fascinated to talk to other people especially who are writers and musicians who spend some time and creative cycles where you're it's a different space you're kind of in when you're creating and so I was interested with you with your I mean you're a jazz musician and so improv is a big piece of jazz and so i was really curious how if you can talk a little bit about your um involvement what kind of music 
experience you were having and then how that may have changed over the course, either during your recovery or, or now, because you're you're starting to buy some beautiful instruments, you know, well, and spend more time. Liam is the is the question. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I you know I started playing the guitar when I was about fourteen. My brother went off to college, and I started high school. And so he'd come home most weekends, and he always knew a few new tunes he picked up from guys in the dormitory and all that. So anyway, he schooled me on everything he was picking up, and it was great because I made a lot of progress. And then my folks um, paid for me to have lessons uh, with the guy at a local music store. And he was a pretty good player, you know, so it wasn't a 100% positive experience, but it was good. And uh, I actually ran into him years and years later at one of my brother's weddings. Mm. He was a guitarist in the orchestra that would sing for the wedding. It's pretty good. But anyway, I you know, so I was pretty serious about guitar back then. And uh, I think coming out of high school, I, there, there was a guy uh, who played guitar with the jazz band in our high school. And his dad was a guitar player and he had like a wedding band. So it was guitar, cordovox, which is an electronic accordion, accordion mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> almost like an organ sound. It's pretty good. You know? So guitar, cordovax and cordovax and drums and uh God, I'm trying to remember his name, the guy that was my age, but uh, he played drums in his dad's band, but he was a good enough guitarist to make it into the jazz band at the high school. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember why I brought all that up. Well, you're just giving the background. So, I mean, I know you had done some recording years ago. Yeah. Um, and so that was cool. And I know you were, you know, you were a doctor, you're busy. So the time that you've been able to spend on music has morphed with you know the time raising the kids and all that but you had gotten into it again and so if you can think about the time when you were you know doing that recording in terms of how the your interaction with your music practice may have changed between then and now other than we're all older you know the so first thing that i recorded was something about the uh uh Oh, what the heck was the thing, the thing name? But uh, it it was about the um, the the improvement in the economy in Ireland to the point where they were hiring hiring English people to come work in the factories in Ireland. You know, mm. so uh, there was a New York Times article on the Celtic Tiger, and it was you know that was a phenomenon where their economy economy was so great that the Celts had the tiger going for them. You know. <laughs> And it was, you know, it was like the lyrics to a tune, the way it was written. So I just made a tune out of it and recorded it. And it was fun to do, you know, and I actually, and I plagiarized some uh, poetry from, uh, what's his name, Yeats. Hmm. And, uh, Probably in the public domain now, so it's okay. Oh, yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> I didn't think of the thing. Being Irish, oh, heck, I'd have to go grab the book. He hit us. Oh, I can't remember. You know, he had something like he was skeptical to a fault. Uh, and so you use some of that poetry in the piece? Yeah, right. And uh, oh, I can't remember exactly. But being Irish, he was miserable enough so that uh, it made, you know, pleasurable times look pleasurable or something. You know, mm. it was like. So that, and then I recorded, I had another tune that I'd been at that point that I recorded. But then I didn't really do any of that for a long time. And I, I tried to play music 
most days, you know, I have a couple of guitars around and a piccolo and a saxophone and a double bass. And mm. So there's lots of opportunity to just pick something up and start playing. How did that feel after you had the strokes? Because once, you know, you were going to take time off of work. So your therapy was just moving around the cabin, so to speak. And so... Yeah. Um, I remember Mary trying to encourage you to spend more time with your music because now you had some time, you know, some extra time. And so how did it feel doing that? I mean, with your brain, cognitively, there's kind of a, uh, during recovery, there's a little bit of a, a, a lag and a delay and stuff. And I wonder if that translated into the work you did with music or somehow those parts of your brain didn't have that same lag. I had I was lucky in that I wasn't paralyzed at all, you know, because it wasn't an embolic stroke, and so it was a hem- you know, it was just in the parenchyma of the brain in the frontal lobe on the left. Side. The whole frontal lobe is just a scar at this point; it's not really functioning. Mm-hmm. They said that I would lose my uh, executive function because of that. So then the guy, as soon as he said that, he turned to Mary and he said, "That means he can't control road rage." <laughs> and she's like, "Oh, he's not very good at that now." <laughs> So anyway, I got home and uh, everything was pretty normal. I was getting around okay and everything, but I the times that I sat down and tried to play the guitar, I had difficulty. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I was the paralyzed, guitar. but just the, the patterns of movement, you know, mm-hmm. your shapes of chords and stuff, you got them in your head and you go to grab them and it's grabbing something different. So that was uh-huh. happening. Anyway. And so it, there was a little, there was a period of about two weeks of just, playing enough chords and scales and exercises and arpeggios and all that kind of stuff until things got back to normal. But thankfully, mm-hmm. did, you know. And with this one, uh, the strokes I had in January, I had a, I was in an ICU for a while, then in a step-down unit, and then they shipped me to a rehab hospital. Mm-hmm. There I had speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy. Like, you know, there were like every day I had like six or seven appointments with all these therapists. Mm-hmm. And uniformly, they just walk in, they say, Oh, feel like taking a walk? <laughs> that was the therapy. Oh, geez. So, anyhow, that, I did that and I was in that hospital about a solid week, maybe maybe eight days. I can't remember. But altogether, it was, uh, I think it was five weeks in the hospital. And that's some long, that's a long period of time. That's a long time. Yeah. So did you play any music when you were in the hospital or that waited until you came back? Yeah, I did actually, because the the uh, speech therapist was also in, in, involved in like evaluating my cognitive ability. Mm-hmm. So, so she's sitting there with a computer with me and we were together about 40 minutes or so. And at the end of it, she said, uh, I'm sorry to say that you're neglecting all input from your left visual field. And I was like, no, I'm not. I was here with you those whole 40 minutes. I'm not neglecting anything. And then she said, and you're not using your left hand as well as your right hand. And so all of a sudden, all these, you know, this cavalcade of therapists are coming through the room. They're all coming in saying, well, I see you're moving your left hand. Good bully for you. (laughs) So anyway, there was a, there was a young nurse that was very nice with us and nice to us and all that. And so, she is interested in you know starting to learn to play guitar so i was talking to her about that and and anyway then with all this bs about how i wasn't moving my left hand i told mary bring bring a guitar in mm-hmm. so i got the young the young nurse crying you know? mm. 
but it was good. So I realized then that my hands were better than the than they were after the first stroke. Yeah. Good. And so, what kind of music have you been playing? Well, I, I, as you noted, I purchased a new instrument, this double bass that I bought as a new instrument, and so I'm just taking lessons from a guy who's you know, a pretty proficient player, mm -hmm. and uh, just trying to get my act together on that a little bit, trying to play some music with it, which is not a foregone conclusion. It's a whole different animal than a bass mm -hmm. guitar, you know? but it's you know. So I'm doing that, and I play, and I still play guitar probably two or three times a week, mm -hmm. and try and play the bass every day. So are you still when you when you're practicing, I'm curious in the um, as I've been, you know, kind of dipping my toe more into improvisation in general. And so you've got jazz improvisation, you know, comes up first and then um, comedy acts improv, you know, comes up second. Um, but the the thing that fascinated me was that the science and i can't remember the guy's name um i'll look it up while i'm here because i made a note of it uh that he is a neurologist and a surgeon and he was fascinated about creativity and music and so um in trying to study jazz musicians in an fmri you know in yeah. terms of how they learn a bass and then they improvise it and whatnot and then get that now you're laying on your back with this you know it's it's not uh conducive to what their normal environment is but just finding that parts of the brain light up the the ones that kind of make the decisions and are the traffic cop that's not the technical term but those get kind of shut down and the ones that just want to play figuratively and you know physically are lit up and so I was just thinking from your perspective that allowing that improvisation brain to do its thing since you had already played in that mm -hmm. sandbox so to speak because you did improv you know jazz improv before that I wondered how it felt doing that now it's a strange thing. I mean, language is, uh, primary music is is a language unto itself, you know. And so when you spend a lot of time, you know, practicing, you know, jazz licks and recording solos from great players that you're following and that kind of stuff, you, you know, you kind of learn their language and mm -hmm. their use of certain, you know, the way they'll frame an arpeggio of a chord or something like that. You can't learn those things. And that becomes part of the language that you understand and that you're hearing when you're listening to somebody play. You know? So that that's still sort of there. And it, it comes down to licks almost because, mm -hmm. you know, you know, I, you know, I could specify particular licks, but the way I heard them before, I still hear them and I still try and go for them, you know. So that's pretty much the same. And then I, I didn't mention that I had another whole a uh, recording session where I spent three days with a guy in his studio, and one of the, I think the first day I was there with him, I just we kind of went over what the possibilities were, and then he said, "Well, I've got some backup musicians I could call and hire them to come put some tracks down." So we hired a pianist, a drummer, and uh, a bass player. Mm -hmm. So they came and we laid down basic, basically rhythm section tracks for the two tunes I was recording, and then I came back and put in the vocals the vocals and the guitar solos and stuff at a separate section session so I was there three days with the guy and I couldn't afford there to be there one day so that was <laughs> the... but it was fun 
And one of the tunes was an ode to my son who passed away about. That was a beautiful song. Yeah, 2005 or something like that. I can't remember. But Do you have well, that song up on the internet somehow, or is that just the DVDs on, we got? The only place it's currently located is Spotify. Mm, I'll have to. You have to look under artist, and it's Michael William Keith. Okay. Well, I'll do that and get the link and okay. add that to the podcast info. Cool. It's a beautiful song. A yeah, beautiful so there's that one, and then there's a love song. It makes me laugh. <laughs> Why does the love song make you laugh? It's, it's uh, well, it's a love song written from the perspective of someone who's a you know a sports nut. And I wrote it. For my my sister in law has a blues band in Chicago, and so I was trying to write something that she would play. And she's never gotten interested. So once she heard my recording of it, she's like, "I got one in that song." I was like, "I know. <laughs> I wrote it for you." <laughs> That's a great story. That's a great story. Yeah, so that's good. And so it's mostly at this point guitar and bass that I'm playing now. And so, take how often are you taking all those lessons with that with the person with the he, new? He, he actually comes here, which is oh nice. Yeah, yeah. So I, I see him every Friday, and good. so he doesn't have to haul anything. I, you know, I've got an instrument, a bow, and all that. So mm. he'll if he's demonstrating something to me. He'll just do it mm -hmm. myself. You know. So are you gonna? Do you have any? Uh... Um, ideas for recording after you learn this new instrument well i uh yeah definitely it's a that's a great idea i'm kind of shoveling out the cellar you know we have a semi-finished cellar here but it's got a low ceiling it's like you know oh. six, six foot six on one side and, and less than that six foot three on the other side so when my son walks in there, his, his oh, head is right against the ceiling. Oh. But that'd be a recording studio. Well, I mean, it's a it's, practice? A, it's a it's a soundproofed room and everything. So, yeah, I've, and I've got the equipment I need. I just need to get organized, and I've taken a, several classes at UCLA learning to try to use all this equipment. And mm -hmm. you know, the the environment you record in is a software package, basically, and. Mm -hmm. If you do it every day, I imagine it's not a big deal. But if you do it once in six months, you have to start over again yeah. and teach yourself the beginnings every time. So that's, that's frustrating. That's good for neuroplasticity. Good. And then I know there's a I know a guy who has a he rented out like an old warehouse space in in Panorama City, which is where the hospital was that I worked last, mm -hmm. and uh, he basically you know built another room within each of the rooms, so they're all soundproof to the max and stuff so and he's got good equipment so i need to make a few calls to figure out who he is again though it's been a while that was an exciting day in terms of music for me it was my my 60th birthday uh you know we had had unfortunately we had this young friend in town who was a promising composer and he was managing to get soundtracks for tv shows and stuff so he was doing well for himself but he he was a uh, you know uh, a friend of Vince Vaughn's you know so Vince Vaughn apparently lives in Chicago and every once in a while he puts a call out to all his boys and they get together for a little revelry for a oh. week so unfortunately our friend reveled to the point where he was dead afterwards you know oh. well, don't know how that could have happened we were just drinking water and seven up you know 
okay vince let me watch your next sophomore movie you know? mm. but anyway our friend passed away and it was uh you know it was quite tragic i'm sorry but in the process of just hanging out with him a little bit i got to see his studio space and you know i have some idea how it could happen but basically i mean i've paid a lot of money for music lessons over the years but now i could pay some money to have somebody teach me how to, mm -hmm. how to deal with logic or you know, one of these software environments right and do you want will you do the same thing again where you have you lay down different tracks or will you get with some other musicians and kind of do do something together again yeah that would the, the second version would be a great idea it would be nice to have some people to play with so yeah but I mean, the convenience of having this guy on a little studio call three people, they showed up, they're all great players. You know, we the, With one try, we laid down tracks for both of them. So wow. Was good. That would be fun. That would be fun. So if if you could go back, um, now I'm switching lanes to the stroke specifically. Um, if you could go back in time, what would you, what advice would you give to an earlier version of you in terms of before the strokes and life now? It's interesting um, because I, I've had two hemorrhagic strokes affecting, you know, at least symmetrical parts of the brain and all that, but it's been a very different experience each time. And the, the, uh, the stroke in 2015, I was really pretty incapacitated for probably six months. You know? mm -hmm. Did a lot of times staring at the wall, staring mm -hmm. at paintings, you know. And my daughter, who was a former dancer and a former Pilates instructor, just kind of sat in front of me one day and said, Dad, you got to start doing something. You can't just keep staring at the wall. <laughs> so she got me set up with a Pilates teacher and that's been a great relationship and a, you know just a great outlet and mm -hmm. way to stay sort of toned up and good yeah so good. she's she's currently the other woman but i have to watch what i do with the other way <laughs> which leads me to the next question which is what advice would you give to caregivers spouses and the teams that work with people who have had strokes or other brain injuries, what advice would you give them in hindsight after what your experience was? I just think positivity has, was the biggest thing that helped me out. It was nice to have, you know, my, my kids live in the Bay Area and then Portland, Oregon. So it was really nice to have them kind of drop everything and come down and help Mary for a few days. You know? So that made a lot of difference. So between them and the positive experiences with therapists in the rehab center it was uh, it was good by the time i got home i felt okay you know? yeah is there anything else that you want to share that we didn't cover well i think uh you know one of the things that's been difficult for for me is we we're trying to line up some in-home care for me to begin when, when mary was going to have to go back to work mm -hmm. And so that was a, a bit of a challenge. It turned out that the, there was a sweet little Filipino woman who cared for my mother when she was declining. And uh, so my sister happened to still have her number. So she called her and 
So she had a niece and the niece's husband who lived out here and who were doing that kind of work, you know. So we tried working with them. We had to, you know, we had three or four different companies come through and talk mm -hmm. to it. There's, I, I don't feel like there were scammers by any means, but I don't know. I mean, how much can you offer somebody else? You can make sure they don't fall down, I guess. It's... Yeah. And it was just a matter of time that you just had to kind of do your PT exercises and let time, your body heal. Before yeah, you... that's true. And it hasn't, it hasn't finished it. <laughs> well, I don't think we are any of us ever. I mean, as long as we're alive, we're working on something. Yeah, but you know, like I, when you were saying before, you were things had slowed down and stuff like that. You know, from I was watching you from the outside, and it was obvious that things had slowed down. And mm -hmm. they've they've picked back up again. By the way, <laughs> you're looking good. good, good. So I think you know whether it's family that's going to help you, or whether you're hiring people to help you. That's one part we have to be assertive and cautious, you know. Yeah. Because people and allowing the help, because I mean, you've been very independent and, um, you know, acknowledging that for a period of time you need some extra help is kind of a little bit of a. I, I get that. So it's, it's difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. what I want? Why would I want some to pay somebody to do what I can already do? You know, married? Uh -huh. oh, you can't do that. You'll fall in the pool, or you know, whatever. He's just looking out for you. Yeah. Yeah, in that regard, I'm very, very lucky that mm -hmm. I have somebody who's so devoted. And... She loves you. A lot of people love you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear. Um, I'll post the song, and then when you um, you get the next one recorded, I can always go and update the podcast with the latest recording. All right. That sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. Thanks, Mike, for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. Great okay. to see you. Say hi to Mary. Jeff says hi. Oh, okay. Same way. Yeah, good. Okay. Uh, Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me this month. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, leave a comment, and subscribe. Until next month, take a moment and hug someone you love.